Hello and welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode, we'll be reviewing one picture book and one chapter book. We started off with books that we read as kids, but if you've got a book you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch. You can email us on eventhetrunchable at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchablePod and on Instagram at eventhetrunchable. And this week, we're reading books about being on the wrong side of the door. (laughs) Our chapter book will be Coraline by Neil Gaiman, and we're going to start with our picture book, Alfie Gets In First by Shirley Hughes. And this week, again, we have a very special guest. We're welcoming Simon Mole. Simon is a spoken word poet, acclaimed children's poet, theatre maker and education worker. Uh, He moved into writing kids' books in 2020 with Kites, followed by I Love My Bike, which we read and loved on this podcast back in January Hello, Simon. Hi, Simon. Hiya. Thanks so much for having me on. No worries. How are you doing? Yeah, I am great. I'm very excited. I've been reading and rereading the picture book that we picked, and I'm very excited to hear what what you guys thought of it. Yeah, so Alfie Gets In First was, was your pick. So why Alfie Gets In First? Well, I think, yeah, yeah, inspired by the kind of thing in your intro there, really, and that I I absolutely loved it when I was a kid. Uh, and then I've had a second love for it, reading it to my children. That in itself is enough, really. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I think it's just a great book. Like to be that enduring. Like I'm nearly forty. Do you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. not. It's aged like so well. But then actually, now that I'm a bit more involved in children's literature, if you will, like just to have a bit more of an understanding of what a defining author and illustrator Shirley Hughes is yeah. you know like as the Alfie ones that I really mm. remember and some of them when reading them to my kids I was like getting that double hit of like oh this is good and they're <laughs> loving it but kind of like you can't quite remember what's going to happen yeah. but you're just getting like that wave of like I know I love this like from somewhere <laughs> deep inside you that you can't really remember like yeah so quite a powerful experience reading them really I found it definitely feels like one of those kids books that adults will, will enjoy as well which feels yeah. like such a skill right yeah so I did this is the first of the Alfie books wasn't it yeah and I didn't know that at all and actually until this to be honest it's very clever as well, the titling, Alfie Gets In First, for yeah. the first book in the series, and how much she was thinking about the, the branding yeah. of the series moving forwards. But um, So do you want to take us through what happens in Alfie Gets yeah. In First then? Okay, great. Well, I feel like from the very first sentence, it, there's something that we, that we learn about why they're good books. One day, Alfie and Mum and Annie Rose were coming home from the shops. And that, that like, is so simple. There's not... It can't be a kid out there that like isn't on some level subconsciously or somewhere thinking like I've done that. Yeah. I've come home from the shops with my family, whoever they are. That therefore means your life is worthy of a story in a book. Do you know what mm. I mean? Even if you're somewhere thinking that's a bit boring, why are we starting with that? Like it's only one <laughs> sentence. And then next, you know, he runs on ahead. He wanted to get home first. And so essentially, the very, very simple summary is like he wants to get home first. He races in ahead of his little sister and then he slams the front door behind him. 
and he's inside the house with mum's key, which is a visual detail, which is beautiful. A few yeah. spreads in, you can just you can just see it like like an alarm. Do you know what I mean? It's like shouting out, yeah. she's put it in the basket. It's got she's still outside. Like yeah, yeah, high level on that. And um, and then it's just it, essentially it's kind of they're trying to fight, think of ways that he might be able to get himself out and the uh, the neighbourhood one by one kind of gradually get drawn into the adventure and try and think of ways to to help or not um and then by the end he just he kind of just works out for himself well actually he does something that his mum suggested earlier yeah but he wasn't able to do it earlier yeah exactly he was too upset and i think we've all been a child or been with a child who's too upset to do something which might actually be quite simple at other points (laughs) and um Yeah, that's what I've read that what Michael Rosen said about her work is that at the core of it is a child's feelings yeah. and that she'd spent her whole life taking that as seriously as many take adult feelings and emotions yeah. and that he felt that's what part of what made her work so special and so important. Yeah. And I feel like that as well. It's incredibly driven by that. So like when as soon as he's locked in, it's like Annie Rose, that's his little sister, like was hungry as well as tired. She began to cry. Yeah. Then Alfie began to cry too. She's just following the feelings along in a way that's so gettable that she doesn't need yeah. to do any more than that. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, and Annie Rose feels so important in this, right? Because she doesn't really do anything other than sit in a pram and cry. But it's that thing then of Alfie in relation to her. Alfie's a big brother. He's running to get ahead. I love the bit when he <laughs> runs to get ahead and he gets to the door and he's sat on the step and he's like, I got that first, so there. And it just <laughs> says, Annie Rose didn't really care. <laughs> yeah it's brilliant because i do wonder obviously does that is that what inspires his character to then go further yeah is it that he's a, he's trying to get there ahead of her to win and then she so obviously isn't bothered that he's got to the step that he's like right well i'm really gonna get in there that's what i was wondering like i was wondering did he slam the door on purpose was it one of those things that as a kid you see that you could do and then suddenly you can't resist. He knows he shouldn't really slam the door in mum and his sister's face, but he just, it happens, and oh, it's, then it's too late. But kids do that, don't they? That's like yeah. the basic psychology of kids. Like, what happens if we do this? Yeah. <laughs> and that is, there's another thing there where, like, just before he slams it, she writes, but what do you think Alfie did then? So he's inside, <laughs> and and that's the last line on that page, and then it turns, and oh, you know, it's just a great illustration of using a page break well in the same that you might use a line break well in a poem. Also, it, I think it's really important because it does invite you to get imaginatively involved. And I feel like as a grown-up reading that, not every grown-up is always feeling confident or ready to start engaging with what might happen here in the book or what might go there. Some days I feel like it, some days I don't. I'm not to have that placed in there. It's not like a forceful thing it's just a nudge towards if you felt like it you could actually talk about what do you think might happen and then maybe that opens a chance to do that in ways outside of the text like oh can you spot the key you know so I think that's really exciting as well yeah yeah she's so good at signposting isn't she yeah the key is just always sitting there I just I just the illustrations do something obviously she is an illustrator but her observation of character, her capturing of body language is so incredible. 
in in that sort of what do you think Alfie does next? It's not just the sort of situation, it's his whole body language. Such a skill to get it in a still image, but he looks like a little lad primed to do exactly the thing that he shouldn't <laughs> do, right? <laughs> I was reading um, an interview with her where she was uh, chatting about working and drawing and stuff. This lovely quote says, I still love watching kids and drawing out here. Sports day is good value. I love how they stand when they look uncertain or when they all suddenly become engaged in peering at something and all crouch down intently and then fly off like a flock of birds. She's such a good observer of people and kids specifically. Yeah, and that's true of the visuals and of the writing, isn't it? That kind of seeing and then re-seeing the world and then sharing it, the job of an artist of all kind of formats. That innovation as well, I think, in the book of like once he's locked in, how the the right-hand page is him inside and then yeah, the left-hand so like page. The spine of the spread. book is the wall between inside and outside. And then it's always the same frame as well. It's very sequential, almost yes. like a comic. Like it's exactly the same frame of the street. And so you can follow what um, Mum and Annie Rose are doing. You can also follow, like, you can probably see a character two pages before they come into the narration, yeah. coming up the street. You see the window cleaner with his ladder a couple of pages before. And, yeah, 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 it's proper smart. And I think, like, without the spine in the middle, I'm not sure that the effect emotionally would be as strong because you get a yeah. sense of how close they are physically, but also how far away they are from mm-hmm. actually connecting because of the door. And I think the power of that is not having one really smart picture on one page that shows that, but having the yeah. two across the two, it kind of really just gets the most out of the format. Uses the yeah. blank space really well, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Because it is really scary. Yes. I, I take a four-year-old to the library every week and Alfie is absolutely his favourite. Mm-hmm. And this is his favourite Alfie. But it also frightened him. His mum told me that she was reading it to him as a bedtime story and he needed to get out of bed and go to the front door and practice opening it by himself just in case this happened to him. You know, he was like, oh, better better go and practice to see if I could get myself out of this situation because he's also not quite tall enough to reach the latch. Okay, yeah, yeah. It plays into really genuine fears, I think. You know, Mm. this is maybe the first time Alfie's been without his mum and it's that separation and that, I think that moment of realisation as a kid that your parent doesn't quite know what to do either. Yeah. You know. True, true, true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's got to be a pretty scary Who thing. Who's your favourite out of the the neighbours that come to try and help? Favourite character is a bit of a regular segment we do. And I feel like we're fairly unanimous on Maureen here, aren't we? It's Maureen, right? Wait, let's talk about Maureen. Yeah, let's just quote her. Mm, might have to break a window, but I'll try to climb up the drain pipe first, if you like. <laughs> if you like. Yeah, yeah. So Mrs. McNally's Maureen was a big girl. And it's just like, yeah. again, that being in the words of a of a child, I think yeah. is so important as well. Like, oh, she's a big girl from down the street. And um, She's what, nine? Oh, Ten? yeah, yeah. She looks only that. She's young enough to present that as a genuine like oh you know if if you want to i'd be up for breaking your windows like as a favor 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she doesn't she doesn't offer that in any of the other follow-up books. I wondered whether like that would be a great kind of recurring theme. Mrs. McNally's Maureen like might have to break a window. Like what kind of scenarios could you imagine in a picture book where she would be able to genuinely offer to break a window in a way that seems really kind of personable? <laughs> she walked um, into every store. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like just for like the super fans, I think that'd be a that'd be a great touch. I'd like to talk about the narration style as well. Yes. What I noticed was the narration stays with Alfie until Alfie starts working on the problem by himself. And then he's not mentioned for a few pages. Mm. So you can see him as the child in the lap. You can watch what Alfie's doing. But it's almost like he's so alone that even the narration has abandoned him. Mm. And that gives him the space to start his problem solving by himself. I think that's so clever because it has been saying it's been staying with his feelings. It's been, you know, like Alfie's crying. He says he can't do it and he can't reach the letterbox and he can't put the key in. the. But then, like, as soon as he sort of gets going, the narration just like quietly drops him so that there's yeah. a little bit of a surprise when he opens the door. Well, the, you're following the visuals. Yeah, yeah, you've got to be keen eyed as a young person reading it yeah. to make sure that, you know, oh, he's up to something, even yeah. though. She, she, the writing is talking about something else. And I think that's a key thing in picture books in general. There's got to be some interplay between the text and the image in some way that keeps you on your toes. And what I love is when the image is slightly ahead of the text because then the yeah. child gets to feel like they're ahead of the grown-up. Yeah, And that's the best thing. Yeah, and I think that... I love her listing of the neighbours as well. Yeah. And then Mum and Annie Rose and Mrs McNally and Mrs McNally's Maureen and the milkman all stood on the top step <laughs> and watched while the window cleaner put his ladder up against the house. He started to climb up to the bathroom window, but when he was halfway up the ladder, what do you think happened? And by that point, you see Alfie's pulled his little chair up to the door and yeah. he's about to solve the problem. But I feel like that that's a, that spread is the kind of culmination of what, mm. what you're talking about there. And I, I very much agree that it's about, like you say, feeling like you're ahead of the grown-up reading and I, I feel it's interesting actually I was reading in her obituary in the Guardian that like initially she'd wanted to do stage design at Liverpool School of Art and then one of the tutors said oh why don't you do some illustration but mm. she'd always maintained throughout her life that picture books were intrinsically theatrical they yeah. are ultimately that moments like that is what you're talking about but I feel it's because they're written to be read aloud to an audience, usually a small audience, but that kind of special moment of that connection and that exchange. And I feel like, as you said there, her her books just in a very natural, unforced way really understand that yeah. theatricality of the, the potential of the book to, to, to do that, you know? Yeah, that's lovely. I think it gets that sense of agency, that bit as well of Alfie dropping off, right? Because it's all the adults outside sort of, edging towards panic and flustering and figuring it all out and it just yeah Alfie just gets that space to quietly do his own thing and then he stands back so proud to let everybody in I know and again (laughs) it's the body language in the pictures he's like and I love how how pleased they are all did it ever does it occur to you at any point that like mate you've shut yourself in the house and it's taken you about 15 minutes to do the thing that I told you to do when you first got shut in there that's exposing um a potential side to my own to many people's parenting I'm sure on a good day I hope that I would go in and give everyone a cup of tea and say oh well well done man you solved it on your own but I know that some bit of me on some days might be feeling like 
I told you to get the chair. You'll be like, don't be looking so proud of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shut the door, mate. Like, no, not like, but but it in, but but I do love that about the book. That the moment is that you know what he's in. They all come down, as we say. The layout visually changes there, which I think is really lovely. Like it, the, the the illustration is in the kitchen, and the milkman and the window cleaner and Mrs. McNally and Mrs. McNally, you know they're all there having a tea and a biscuit and it's spread across the right hand page and the left hand page yeah. the full image and that's because in we're all back together now yeah it just feels so spacious another theatrical moment do you know what yeah. I mean the shift of the space in the book and I feel like yeah it's it's a lovely a lovely end to it definitely yeah then you've got the little end note after as well just the image on the final one page where it's mum and Alfie and Annie Rose just looks like they're waving goodbye to all the others yeah. about to close the door together. Do you know what I mean? Which is yeah. like a... It's a lovely full circle moment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like initially the the issues created by his desire to, to win and to to beat them in some way. Like we've all got, like it's just so, <laughs> totally natural. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. But then by the end, actually they're, they're a bit more like united and he's got his hand on the door, but they're kind of there, there together. I think that is nice. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously you've been in the poetry world a long time, worked with kids a long time. Was it yeah. always like a long-term goal of going to write in kids' books? Or did that... I'm not really at all. Like so, so much of what I've written over the years has been to perform. I love writing stuff to be performed and then performing it and like sharing in those moments and anytime I'd thought oh will I put some of this performance stuff in a book I'd kind of always thought like oh you know what like would I really want them to just read it on the page and that'd be the only interaction with it like I feel like I would like to write something different if that was the case over the last few years I started like writing performance stuff and shows for children and families my son is seven now and you know like you're starting to read books and thinking oh wow I'd love to have a go at that I'd love to you know and just got a chance to to have a crack at a few and thankfully like one of them got picked up but actually now it's definitely like a kind of central driving thing like creatively for Mm. for me of what's going on and I've been really lucky with I Love My Cat because we did I Love My Bike and then I was saying to Quarto the publishers I'd really like to do another one about the same little girl but have it be about her cat and her relationship with her cat and and that they were like "Yeah, yeah okay let's try and build a bit of momentum with this and She's such a great character. She's just such a really, really appealing character. Yeah, we loved her in I Loved My Bike. Uh, It's that agency again, I think, giving little kids agency. It's that free, like supervised freedom. Mm. Yeah, I Love My Cat is a little bit more of a narrative. With I Love My Bike, it was all very much in the one moment. I Love My Cat begins in a kind of similar way. I Love My Cat, that shiny black fur that tiny white ring that goes right round the tip of her tail. I think it means she might be magic. When she nudges and nuzzles her head against my leg, I know she loves me back. Addy buddy boo-boos, I love my cat. It kind of continues in that vein to some degree. There's like a, a picture book equivalent of great stuff that cats do spread, you know, where we see it like <laughs> opening the door, climbing, running up a wall, but then the cat ends up running out and then it doesn't come back for tea. And from that point on, it becomes more of a a story which I hope is a bit like some of that journey and some of the Alfie ones. That journey of will it or won't it come back. And there's one bit, so like they're 
they're like calling out from the balcony like we bang a lang to her bowl from the balcony and like when I was a kid like my mum used to like call for our cat to come in and just say it's like in, like an increasingly ridiculous list of nicknames do you know what I mean so it'd start <laughs> off with the cat's real name and it wouldn't come and then you did the you know like all the little like cat noises that people do do you know what I mean so this one spread it's just like Aditi Aditi Fiti Sweetie Dozy Didi Dim Dance you know and it's just like it's kind of spiraling and like I just so it's just that moment where you can say those moments from your life now which maybe aren't that like spectacular or like hero adventure moments can still very much be worthy of remembering they might end up in the books that 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 you write when you grow up yeah i think that sounds wonderful i'm really really looking forward to it yeah when's it out it is out yeah it's out on july the 5th it's available in all the standard online places and hopefully some in-person bookshops as well it's published by francis lincoln children's books so by the time this episode is out, get the to a bookshop. It's out. And have you got anything else coming up? You've got any shows? Any? Because I know you. Are you still? Oh yeah, I'll tell you what. Actually, there are a couple more poetry picnic events coming up, which are for children and families to to come along to. Which is a live event with myself and Gecko, who's a musician and singer storyteller that I work with, where you can come along and see a bit of a gig, but also get involved in doing some writing yourself and get creative, maybe even hop up on the mic at the end if people feel so inclined. Nice. But also the um, the I Love My Cat uh, event, I'm actually taking that to a few libraries around during the summer holidays. And that's oh, something cool. which is... Um, should be really good fun actually like that's for for families i'd say probably maybe four plus so i'm in some libraries in in ealing in hertfordshire maidenhead windsor they're going to be really good really really good fun ones i've had a a cat puppet made for them in fact a bespoke uh cat puppet which i'll be operating myself uh as part (laughs) of the session so that should be quite exciting yeah yeah lovely well, thank you so much for coming on, Simon. You've been really fun. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. Thank, thanks for having me. No, that was fantastic. And I think I am now going to spend the rest of the day saying, like, oh, might have to break a window. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can break this one if you if you like. Yeah. <laughs> if you like. If that's something. <laughs> thank you so much, Simon. Bye. Lovely to see you. Bye for now. And now we're going to move on to our chapter book, which is Coraline by Neil Gaiman. Yes. And Coraline is another scary book about being trapped on the wrong side of a door from your parent and eventually solving the problem for yourself. And Matt, you've got a summary for this, haven't you? I do. So Coraline is the story of a young girl who's recently moved into a new house with her inattentive parents. When she finds a mirror world through an apparently bricked up door in the house, it seems at first that she's found a world where everything is better. Her room is decorated just how she likes it. Everyone stops calling her Caroline instead of Coraline. Her other mother and other father have all the time in the world for her. But they do also have buttons for eyes. Buttons that, if she'd like to stay in this questionable paradise they'd quite like to sew onto Coraline's face too. Ooh, spooky. This is a very spooky book. It is a really spooky book, yeah. But I'd contend Alfie's a bit scary as well for the age it's for. Yes, and I mean they are really similar 
scenes, basically, aren't they? Like, taken in very different directions. Yeah, so this is kind of like gothic horror for seven-year-olds. Yeah, so I, th- I think, interestingly, it's almost not written for a dissimilar age group to Alfie, <laughs> but through sort of the very specific lens of Neil Gaiman and that story style he has that seems to it always leaves me feeling kind of vaguely empty afterwards mm. <laughs> um, and sort of unsettled I was uh, listening to a podcast interview with him from back in 2009 when the film was coming out he almost seemed to be saying that it was his at the time four-year-old daughter who came up with the initial idea that she'd come and sit on his lap and chunter away um, while he was typing his stories into his computer yeah, and she tells stories about a girl who got kidnapped and stolen away by a fake mother and taken off to New York. And <laughs> Yeah, so uh, and so he was saying, oh, that's cool. Um, my four-year-old daughter is into weird gothic fiction. I'll go out and buy her some gothic fiction for four-year-olds. And then found that there wasn't any. <laughs> Weirdly. <laughs> so decided that he'd write some. And it kind of fits that bill. Not quite four-year-old, but you could start sure. six, seven. Yeah, it feels like a book for quite little kids that is is really quite scary and really quite unsettling. Yeah. So you know, we we start with with a little girl who's just moved house, and I think I yeah I feel like this often gets overlooked as well. You know, she it's that fear of being somewhere new, everything's still in boxes. Her parents are sat working all the time, and she's bored. She's just starting to get to know the other people who live in the flats, sort of. So they live all in this big old house that has been converted into flats. Yeah. And she's sort of in the middle flat. And upstairs there is a man and he's training some domestic mice in theatre skills. Yeah, he's he's training a a mouse circus. Yeah. And then downstairs there's these two theatre darlings, these ageing women... Mrs. Spink and Forcible. So once again, we have a classic example of kids' books writers being very, very accurate and on the nose. And harsh. And and harsh in a loving way, but <laughs> slightly mean about, about people in the theatre. <laughs> It does seem to be a theme. We have this in Wild. We have it again here. So they're kind of constantly quoting Shakespeare to each other. And they live downstairs. And then there's a sort of a twin flat to Coraline's flat on the same floor. And it used to be all part of a big house. There's a bricked up door in the sitting room, which would have led into the other flat. And there's no one living in there, as far as they know. Yeah. So that's the setup. Yeah, Coraline says, what's behind that door? Why is it locked? And her mum opens it and it's just a brick wall, which is horrendously disappointing because it's raining and there's not much left to explore outside anyway. It's a very good picture of a bored kid. I kind of, you know, I I was a bored kid a lot Mm, at that kind of age. And I remember the just crushing loneliness (laughs) of like long summer holiday days where there's nothing left to do. And Coraline, early on, receives two warnings about that door. Mr Bobo says that the mice have got a message for her, and the mice say, don't go through the door. Mr Bobo says to Coraline, do you know what that's about? And she goes, no, which is a lie, because she does. And then 
the women downstairs, Spink and Forcible, read her tea leaves and tell her she's in great danger and should be careful. And they give her a hagstone, or what I would call a hagstone, which is a stone with a hole in it that sometimes you can find on the beach and which have long been thought to be associated with witchcraft and paganism and magic. And she's given it as a sort of protective token. Yeah. And then quite quickly, we get taken through the door. Yes. So she goes back to the door. Is it in the middle of the night? I think it is. Yeah, because there's been some sort of shadow creeping around that she follows through. Yeah, and it's suddenly not bricked up anymore. And she walks through into this, presumably the other flat. And it's almost exactly like her flat. And there's a woman in there that's almost exactly like her mum, only better. Mm. <laughs> She's thinner and more beautiful and has buttons for eyes. And she also occupies a more traditional gender role because mm. Coraline's mother in real life isn't much of a cook. The other mother, the first thing she makes is a roast chicken from scratch. And it's delicious with like potatoes. But the main thing is that she's so available. Mm. Because Coraline has spent the whole beginning of the book bugging her parents to do something with her. These parents, the other mother and the other father, are super available to her and just want to play with her all the time. And that's very appealing. But the bit you've glossed over, that is glossed over in a similar way in the book, is they've got buttons for eyes. Yes, <laughs> there is that. <laughs> But it's that that is how it is in the book as well. It's just presented as, oh, and yeah, and also they've got buttons for eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Which, if you think about it for a second, is horrific. Yeah. Just sewn horrifying. into their faces. Yeah. So her parents, her other parents, her other mother and her other father, start telling her how much they love her and that they want her to stay in their side of the flat. Hmm. But, of course, it's a trap. The other mother has locked her in and pretty soon it's not feeling so idyllic and more oppressive. The other mother keeps trying to have these moments with Coraline, these like mother-daughter moments where she tries to stroke her hair or hug her and it feels so disgusting to Coraline. And now she's got a whole quest to try to get back to the real world and to her real flawed but human parents who have been stolen. And that's maybe one of the most upsetting bits of the whole story as well, is she do, she doesn't get trapped straight away. She she goes into the other world and she comes back to her own world and her parents have gone out shopping and they don't come back. So Coraline takes advantage and helps herself to something from the freezer that she's not usually allowed to eat. It's so sad. I know. And then her parents still don't come back. It's like that like triumphant joyous bit at the beginning of the Matilda film if it was like tragic and awful and what that sequence would actually be yeah do you know what I mean like there's no increasingly no food left in the house she ends up eating a block of cooking chocolate and apple yeah <laughs> yeah and then she just gets into bed and has a cry I, it's really grim yeah and then um gradually comes to realize that the other mother has taken her parents. So she's going to have to go back and get them. Yeah, it's really unsettling. I mean, you know, people might be more familiar with the film. Hmm. And I think the film 
paints this other world as wonderful and beautiful and then switches it and it becomes really sinister i think this book is never not sinister right? yeah like, right <laughs> like everything's better but straight away it's like oh this is kind of almost because of the fact that the mother is being so nice and so attentive there's all these hackles up of like oh this is <laughs> this is not okay like who is this person yeah <laughs> Well, you feel it particularly in the other mother's neediness, in her need yeah. to feel loved by Coraline, and her yeah. desire to be close, when actually that closeness feels wrong. Like, we do have, I mean, not to make it too dark, but we do have the non-consensual touching of a child yeah. by an adult in this, and how yeah. the child feels about that. And that, I feel like, if you hadn't worked out by then that the other mother is bad you know in that moment that something about her touch feels really wrong. Shall we talk about Coraline's real parents for a second? Sure, yeah. So, are they actually bad? No, no, not uh, at all. They... They're not good parents. Not... They're not bad people. No, exactly, they, exactly. You know, they've just moved house. They're both clearly into their work to an unhealthy level. Yeah, and they love Coraline. Yeah, they, they do. do get her. They really do. They don't have the time for her right now. I mean, the moral is it's very similar to Not Now Bernard, yeah. right? Like, make sure you keep an eye on spending enough time with your kids or they might get eaten by a monster. Yeah, because she's able to be tempted away because she's so bored. One, uh, one of the things I've heard Neil Gaiman say about this in terms of what he wants the message of the book to be, which I think is really lovely, is that the people who love you and don't have as much time for you as they'd like do still love you it doesn't mean yeah. that they don't and actually the people who seem to have all of the time and attention in the world for you might not have your best interests at heart yeah it's the agency as well i think where this is really similar again to well forgetting first is that Coraline really is in this by herself yeah 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 and has to figure it out by herself and that's part of what's so heartbreaking about it I think the bits that upset me most are just when she's looking after herself because she feels so little yeah. and, you know, she's putting herself to bed and having a big cry and then deciding like alright I better change out of my pyjamas and put on my clothes like all these things that you feel she should be getting help with she's yeah. just doing by herself and it's just heartbreaking Do you, do you think her, par her real parents are bad though? I don't think they're bad people but like you said, they're also not great parents. Like They're not... But I also think not great parents right now. Sure. And, you know, truly, probably this is an experience that a lot of children have had over lockdown. Each parent working on their computer, probably in a Zoom call. And technically yeah. they're present, but also they're not available because they have to work. I don't think they're bad parents. I don't think they're bad people. But I also think they're not great. They don't really do they don't take any part in the solving of the problem they're just they're the damsels in distress i suppose like they're the hostages and they don't really have a lot to do in this book it, i mean it feels quite middle class yeah. and it feels like there's this sort of they're the type of parents who stick very strictly to their own set of parenting rules mm -hmm. to the point that allows a certain blindness so like the meal thing like clearly they're making proper cooked food every night and they've got a thing of, oh, we must 
make sure that this is what our daughter eats and that she gets into a habit of good cook and she just wants frozen food yeah and you just think like at this time when it's like everything's up in the air and you're moving house and she's lonely and like just give her a pizza yeah. do you know what I mean <laughs> so I think it's that sort of element as well of kind of like there's a sort of middle class stiffness to them yeah I think you can sympathize with everyone in this book with the the other mother I was thinking it was really similar to how in the episode we did on Rumesa, we're talking about the wicked stepmother. Yeah. Is so much more scary because you can kind of see where she's coming from. This other mother really just wants to love her, but in a way that's possessive. She said, you know that I love you. And despite herself, Caroline nodded. It was true, the other mother loved her, but she loved Caroline as a miser loves money or a dragon loves its gold. In the other mother's button eyes, Caroline knew that she was a possession, nothing more. A tolerated pet whose behaviour was no longer amusing. But there's that core of kind of need, you know, that feels so human Mm. and so real. And Coraline being able to empathise with her makes it so much scarier Mm. as well, I think. And the other mother expresses such a need for Coraline to show her love. It's so so gross. It's so uncomfortable. But I think she really does want Coraline to love her. And she feels like she's done the stuff. She's like, I made you this perfect world. I've made you this perfect meal. I'm here, available to you all the time. Why wouldn't you choose me? Yeah. And you can see you can see where she's coming from. Of course it's completely unreasonable. Yeah. You know, it's almost a little bit like incel culture, right? Yes, yeah, that's really interesting. It it is that. I've done the nice things. Now I should get you as a reward. Nice guys finish last. Like, oh god, it is. It really is that. And it's sinister in the same way because it has that kernel of kind of like Yeah, your vulnerability, your desire for love. I see where your dissatisfaction is coming from and it's this whole with the incel thing, it's like a whole societal thing and it's like, but you've now taken that to a place where it's like you're not thinking of people as people anymore. It's like something that you're owed. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Other mother is an incel. Shall we talk about um, the world that the other mother has created for Coraline? Because I wanted to talk about how video game-like it is. Yeah, and a video game that you would find on the internet in 2002. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Like a a point-and-click sort of horror puzzler. In some ways, the actual escape is is terrifying and sinister but it's sort of quite easy once she gets into it and it yeah it's like find these three items to unlock the next area yeah i've got a little quote to read about the world behind the door where Coraline came from once you were through the patch of trees you saw nothing but the meadow and the old tennis courts in this place the woods went on further the trees became cruder and less tree-like the further you went Pretty soon they seemed very approximate, like the idea of trees. A greyish-brown trunk below, a greenish splodge of something that might have been leaves above. Coraline wondered if the other mother wasn't interested in trees, or if she just hadn't bothered with this bit properly, because no one had expected to come this far. 
yeah, she she wonders aloud, you know, what what kind of world is it where you walk in one direction and end up back where you started? And her helper, who we need to talk about, yes. um, says, well, try walking around the world. You know, you're going to end up back where you started. And she says, oh, wow, what a small world. And it's that moment of realising that, oh, right, it's just this. Yeah, this is all there is here. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the helper. Yeah, so we need to talk about the cat. Yeah. The cat is not anybody's cat. There is no owner. No. The cat is just the cat, and the cat comes and goes between the worlds. There is no other cat. There is no button-eyed cat. No, because cats can move between worlds, as we know from the Magicians of Caprona. Yes. It feels like there is definite influence from Magicians of Caprona here, yeah. right? Oh, well, you know, Neil Gaiman and Dinah Wynne-Jones are good friends. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was thinking as well, that whole kind of toy box trap is the puppet theatre, yeah. right? It's the same kind of ploy and that same kind of like terrifying artificiality. Mm. So we have a cat, one of the best written cats I've come across. This cat doesn't have a name. And she says, well, um, what if I had food for you? You'd want me to call you there? And he says, yes, but the call of dinner would suffice for me. <laughs> <laughs> See, no need for names. <laughs> and the cat only really helps when it feels like it. I've found a good cat extract. Excellent. Hello, said Coraline. I saw a cat like you in the garden at home. You must be the other cat. The cat shook its head. No, it said, I'm not the other anything. I'm me. It tipped its head on one side. Green eyes glinted. You people are spread all over the place. Cats, on the other hand, keep ourselves together, if you see what I mean. <laughs> I suppose, but if you're the same cat I saw at home, how can you talk? Cats don't have shoulders, not like people do. But the cat shrugged in one smooth movement that started at the tip of its tail and ended in a raised movement of its whiskers. I can talk. Cats don't talk at home. No, said the cat. No, said Coraline. The cat leapt smoothly from the wall to the grass near Coraline's feet. It stared up at her. Well, you're the expert on these things, said the cat dryly. After all, what would I know? I'm only a cat. <laughs> um, let's talk about when Coraline gets put behind the second door, the door of the mirror. Sure. Coraline disobeys the other mother. The other mother wants Coraline to behave in a very particular daughterly way. She has an idea of, again, it's very like traditional gender roles, obedience and agreeableness. And Coraline's not doing this. So the other mother picks her up, gets this key, sticks the key in the mirror and turns it. And then the mirror opens out into a little bit of a broom cupboard. Yeah, um, it's the choke key. Yeah. <laughs> sticks Coraline in there and locks her in. And then Coraline realises that she's not alone in the broom cupboard, that there are some other children in there and they're all really frightened and she can feel that she's holding one of their hands and she's trying to bond with them but they've lost most of their identity at this point and they don't remember much about who they are or who they were. Um, and it goes like this. Are you a girl? asked Coraline. Or a boy? There was a pause. When I was small, I wore skirts, and my hair was long and curled, it said doubtfully. 
But now that you ask, it does seem to me that one day they took my skirts and gave me britches and cut my hair. And then that character goes on to think, probably a boy then. And I think that's a really interesting moment, because when the character first says, I wore my hair long and had skirts, what you as a reader, especially as a young reader, are going to assume is girl, right? Mm. And then it says about the britches and cutting the hair. I think what's interesting is that that clothing is treated as a clue to gender, but not a definitive either. And it also tells us, if you know about britches, about 100 years ago, there was a sort of neuter state for children in terms of clothing, that children all wore long hair and skirts. Yeah, little lads were in dresses and then you would breach them. Yeah, and that was like a big sort of rite of passage from like neutral child to like boy and eventually man. But that there was this in-between space for children where really visually you couldn't discriminate between a little boy and a little girl, which isn't really true now for most children. Oh, God, no. Well, they know the entire culture now is from pre-birth. What colour should we be buying? Yeah, I know. It's horrible. (laughs) And of course, there are people going counterculturally to this. But, like, we have an expectation when we see children that we can tell just from the length of their hair and the kind of clothes that they're wearing. Yeah. It also shows that this child lived a hundred years ago. Yeah, it's a nice little moment. Yeah. Poking fun yeah. at <laughs> the world slightly, I think. <laughs> yeah. Gender's an illusionary construct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now enjoy the rest of the book. This is a very women and girls driven book in that yeah. the hero is a girl and the baddie is a woman. And it's a very feminine form of evil. It's this very traditional idea of the beldam this is the word they use beldam is an antiquated term that means witch or hag but it also refers to a poem by keats called la belle dame sans merci or the beautiful lady without pity and that's sort of like an epic poem about a knight getting seduced by a beautiful elfin woman who eventually sucks out his soul and leaves him as a husk. The same as what the other mother is doing to these children. I've got in the show notes, Matt, if you want to read it, a little excerpt from that poem. She took me to her elfin grot, and there she wept and sighed full sore. And there I shut her wild, wild eyes with kisses full. And there she lulled me asleep, and there I dreamed, ah, woe betide, the latest dream I ever dreamt on the cold hillside. I saw pale kings and princes too, pale warriors, death pale were they all. They cried, la belle dame sans mercy, be half in thrall. So this is the same baddie, right? Except that she's tempting men rather than children. It is the same, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well stolen, well stolen. I love a bit of really good plagiarism in in writing it. So she's sort of like the evil sexy woman. So that's one idea of the witch. It's the evil temptress. But then we've got Spink and Forcible, who are also kind of witchy stereotypes, but they're like the older fat woman who's a bit embarrassing, does a bit of tea leaf reading and that you don't really trust. Yeah, bumbling, friendly, um, incidentally magic. Yeah. And when we're talking to them and they're going on about Shakespeare and stuff, they name three women's character parts in theatre that they feel they would play well. I've looked into each one and I thought I'd tell you about them. 
They talk mm. about they could play Madame Arcati. She's from the mm. play Blythe Spirit, and she's kind of a spiritualist and a clairvoyant. Okay. And they talk about the nurse in Romeo and Juliet, and she's sort of... So she's Juliet's nurse. And yeah. she's this sort of, like, bawdy, working-class woman who makes sex jokes and who yeah. enables the romance between Romeo and Juliet somewhat. Like, she yeah. helps Juliet smuggle Romeo into her bedroom overnight, but also yeah. she betrays Juliet. So here's another... Yeah, accidentally, I think. Uh, it's debatable. Anyway, that's... Uh, <laughs> um, anyway. And then there's Lady Bracknell from The Importance of Being Earnest. She's sort of right. like, you stuffy, rich, hypocritical woman. It's these sort of character parts, triumvirate of, like, lesser female archetypes, you know? But what an amazing way to be able to paint a character. Yeah. It's just be like, it's like these three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the centre point of these three yeah. characters That's who from we are. the literary world. That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's spot on as well. That yeah. is how you, how you picture them. I wanted to talk a little bit about fatness and thinness in this book in relationship to these characters because there's an actual body horror moment not only is the world of the other mother better in that the flat is better the neighbors are also better mr bobo upstairs has actually got his circus working and mrs spink and forcible downstairs have actually got a functioning theater that bit's so weird full of Where those scotty the- dogs all of the Scotty dogs that have turned into vampire bats. Yeah, <laughs> sitting in the audience but, uh, eating chocolate. Just sit- sitting in the audience going, oh, I love this bit. Yeah. It's so strange. And <laughs> Spink and Forcible first appear on stage the way they do in Coraline's world, but then they zip themselves out of their fat old bodies and spring mm. out as live and beautiful athletic performers. Ah. <sighs> And that's the better version of them, right? Thin and young and beautiful. Yeah. Like, that bit made me really uncomfortable because as a fat person, like, I feel like there are very few of us that haven't had that, like, disturbing mental image of, like, unzipping your fat and stepping out as the real true you. Because that's what you're sold, is that, like, every fat person is a thin person in a layer of blubber that we're fighting to escape. Right, right, yeah, right. It does feel... I, I don't like it. I don't like that bit. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I see that. No, that's interesting, though. That's maybe a slight blind spot, isn't it? Well, Neil Gaiman's very slim. <laughs> I don't that's suppose true. he's had that experience. Yes, that's true. I don't think it's deliberate, but it is a bit nasty. And it is. If I was going to recommend this to somebody, especially somebody fat, I might give them a bit of a heads up about, like, there's some fat-related body horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you do you like this book? Yes, I do. I like it a lot. So I think I do. It's going to stay with me. Yeah. But the whole way through was this sort of like, oh, I feel like, I feel like I've been wearing cling film. <laughs> now I need to have a wash. Do you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> now, the fact that he gets away with writing that for kids is, is quite astonishing, really. Who's your favourite character and why is it the cat? <laughs> Yes, I suppose it is the cat. Um, but it's it's going to be yours as well. Fine. 
I mean, I do love Miss Forceful and Miss Fink as well. Yeah. You know, I, I feel count as one character. Yeah. Um, not really distinct. I feel honour bound to stand by them as a fellow lovey. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine's the cat for reasons yeah. we've already mentioned, but um, mainly for the inherent cat magic and in the way that I feel like when you introduce a cat into a story, you don't at all have to justify that they're magical and that they can talk. Should we do Scariometer? This is an interesting one to try to rate. In his interviews, Neil Gaiman said that adults find it much scarier than children. That children kind of take it in the stride. I mean, it's unsettling all the way through it. Standout moment for me was um, towards the end. I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say. The cat decapitates a rat. Yeah. And it's described quite graphically. The other mother is really scary. There's a moment with the other father that's really scary as well. It feels like it should be quite high, but despite all of that, if you know, if the purpose of what we're doing is as a recommendation, I'd say like a five. Yeah. Because I think it's handleable. I think I agree. I'll give it a five. Are you going for a five as well? Yeah, I think so. You've you've convinced me I was going to go a bit higher, but I agree with you. What age should we say it's for? This really is a universal one. You could probably start around seven or eight. Yeah. Um, But I I very much enjoyed it and was unsettled by it and would read it again as an adult. Read at any age, honestly. Yeah. It's very skilled. It's very quick. Um, the chapters are pretty short. It's a great read aloud, but would be an even better read on your own. So that was episode 32 of Even the Trunchbull. Thanks so much for listening. And huge thanks as well again to Simon Mole for coming on and guesting for us. Yeah, thanks, Simon. Uh, once again, if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid. Or loved now as a kid. Let us know, or ask a grown-up to let us know. We're at eventheTrunchbull at gmail.com. Catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbullPod, and on Instagram at eventheTrunchbull. Intro music for this episode, and every single episode, is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. Thank you, Shane. And remember, kids' books can be for everyone, because we've all been kids. Even the Trunchbull.